Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. Today, Baroque indeed rings close to home as we discuss two Georgian queens, Caroline of Ansbach, wife of George II, and Caroline of Brunswick, wife of Prince Regent, i.e. George IV. To help us get to know these Carolines better, we invited Catherine Curzon, author of many books on the Georgian world. Welcome, Catherine! Queen Charlotte episode was our second episode of the podcast mm-hmm. a few um, months ago, should I say now? <laughs> Used to be weeks ago, now it's months ago. And we did a little pop quizy thing at the end where we decided to assign different sex and city characters to the four Georgian queens. Because again, your book, literally just in front of us. Um, And we just thought, okay, so Charlotte is Charlotte. And then one of the Carolines is Miranda. The other Caroline is uh, Samantha, obviously. And then the the leftover is Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) See, I've never seen it. So when you told me that I had to Google sex and the city and I had to see which character was which. Hmm. Because obviously my reference references are if you see me on Twitter my references are 1940s 1950s and when I looked I was like yeah yeah you've you've got it right (laughs) I think you'd love it because it is literally hashtag frocking fabulous and it's yeah (laughs) yeah it is the entire show yeah I have so many things now people keep telling me they said you got to watch Sex and City The Gilded Age no no (laughs) not like that no Uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel yes (laughs) Downton Abbey yes and the one that everyone always gets really shocked but I haven't seen Titanic. <gasps> <laughs> that reaction. <laughs> Calamity. To be no, fair, Titanic is the shortest one out of them all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That because it's true. three hours and nine minutes from what I remember. And it's shorter than everything else. The rest, yeah. <laughs> so definitely I would go with Titanic. Well, obviously I watched Bridgerton because I wrote a book about it. Yep, two, yep. actually. Two, two, two actually. books, yeah. But when I, I was both. asked to write the first book about it, I hadn't seen it. And I said to the publisher, I've never seen it. And he said, watch it and then let me know if you want to write the book. So I watched it and I was like, yeah, that's fine. I just, he said, oh, I just assumed you'd seen it. And I was like, no, no. So then I had to sort of do it. And I've just written one about The Crown, which I have seen. Oh. Um, but I had to watch it all again. And... You know, proofreaders, we're we're here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you want to do a program on that when it comes out, that'd be awesome. It's about um, each. It it goes episode by episode, fact and fiction. What's in the crown and what's happening in real life? And I'm just—it's all finished except for obviously the last season. So as soon as it comes on, I have to watch it and I have to like binge it in a week because I want to get it written and finished. But it was so weird watching it to write about it as opposed to just watching it to be entertained. I'm quite picky anyway. I'm like, no, that didn't happen. That didn't. And you start to feel a little bit sort of churlish and petty it's like no 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 (laughs) (laughs) but luckily i like the show so that made it easier okay we're getting to the carolines because we could actually talk to you all day about everything everything (laughs) so why do you think that charlotte has um has took over the possession of like the most popular georgian queen bridgerton bridgerton she wasn't very well known when I wrote the biography of her, my publisher were really keen to take it because I'd obviously written other books about the Queens, but nobody was really aware of her. And then Bridgerton, and suddenly everyone knows it. That's, I honestly think that's the only reason. And the Georgian Queens aren't very well known anyway, sadly. Mm. But Charlotte, I think, got, for me, she was sort of pushed into the role of the wife of George III. And the story is George III and George III, as mm. they termed it at the time, madness. Yeah. And she just became the kind of poor wife wringing her hands. But mm. Bridgerton has presented, as you say, this kind of particularly waspish, um, quite powerful woman. 
And suddenly everybody is all about Queen Charlotte. And unfortunately, that means our two Carolines, one of whom's story would make an awesome TV series, I think, the second one, have been completely pushed into the background, even more than they already were. More, Not as much as Sophia Dorothea of Cell, who is completely, no. bless her, but they are now the support act to Bridgerton's Queen Charlotte. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're just the one before and the one after. They are, yeah, they're bookends. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> they're bookends. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I love the Carolines, so yes, I'm very happy about this. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of the Carolines. So tell us about the first Caroline. Uh, what was her childhood like? So the first Caroline had what we would call a difficult childhood. Her father died quite early of smallpox, and her mother married again to a man who was, to put it kindly, a brute. And he had a mistress who he treated his mistress like his wife. He lived with her openly. Um, He wasn't just, you know, as we would think of as the sort of royal husband who ignored his wife. He was actively abusive and he made her life absolutely miserable. It became very important to her that her daughter not have to live this kind of life too. So when, sadly, she was often quite young, our first Caroline was sent to live with um, her auntie, who was Sophia Dorothea, and she was the sister of George I. And it was there that she kind of blossomed at Sophia Dorothea's court in Prussia. And she became incredibly interested in literature, in the sciences, particularly in philosophy. Mm -hmm. She was absolutely fascinated with philosophy. She had a great deal of really, for a very young, very in-depth conversations with some great philosophical thinkers. She was fascinated, as her guardians were, with what came after death, with faith, with what the right choices were. And in Sophia Dorothea, she really found a role model. And as we were talking about, not a feminist, but someone who was probably as close to that as you're going to get in the era. Someone who encouraged her to think freely, to make her own decisions, obviously within the restrictions of the time and her gender, but not the restrictions that she would have faced in some other places. And she became one of the most eligible young women in Europe, but also because of this great intelligence that she was known to have. And she was also quite frightening for some of the men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they were a little bit like, you know, as we now know, George III did not want, when he was picking a wife, he didn't want a wife. He rejected wives that had interest in philosophy because mm. he thought that's trouble down the line, that's trouble brewing. But she was one of the most eligible women in Europe. That's how she came to her quite Mills and Boonish meeting with the man who became her husband. That's so funny because, I mean, Caroline was George III's grandmother, right? So. Yeah. Did he not think he'd, he would want a queen like her? George III was dominated by his mother, right. who was also a very political mover and shaker. There's some theories that although he was happy to be dominated by his mother, firstly, he didn't want it in a wife, but secondly, he didn't want a wife who would kind of clash with the mother. You know, if you get like a strong mother-in-law and a strong daughter-in-law yes, and they're both vying, yeah. so it's kind of like butting heads. Yeah. But yeah, George III wanted a quiet wife. He wanted, because he wanted to have a quiet life. He wanted a quiet, quiet wife, quiet life. But yeah. his, yeah, his grandfather quite wanted something different. He wanted someone with a bit of spark and a bit of sass. So his father, George I was obviously George II's father. And George I had had a disastrous arranged marriage. Mm. 
uh, absolutely catastrophic, which had ended with his wife in prison for 30 years. He actually said to his son, I want you to choose your own wife so this doesn't happen. They went through all the candidates as they do, and they found this girl, Carolina Vansberg. And George II, he was just a prince then, decided to go and meet her, but he didn't want her to know he was the heir to this great kingdom. So he went in disguise. It's like Cinderella, but gender swapped. Yeah. Well, he's not, he was rich at the start, but he went to court as a man called Monsieur de Bush. <laughs> and he went traveling as Monsieur de Bush. And yeah. just, he was a young, rich noble, but he was really nobody. And whether she really didn't cotton on, who knows? But he believed she didn't cotton on, and they fell in love. George and Tinder at its best. Exactly that. (laughs) Exactly that. And then he said, surprise, this is who I really am. And she went, oh, my goodness, what a surprise. I never would have guessed. (laughs) That sounds really sarcastic, but, you know. And they were married. So this is the kind of thing that Henry VIII tried. So first he had it successfully with Catherine of Aragon when he was like, I'm Robin Hood. Oh, wait, no, I'm actually Henry. You know, did you recognize me? And then he tried it with Anne of Cleves and that went disastrously wrong. (laughs) But George II got it right. Go, George. He did. He did. And he got he got himself a bargain, as they would say. He got this. She's lovely to look at, which, you know, obviously we want more than that. Well, he was like, yes, you know, she's lovely to look at. (laughs) She's smart. She's very well connected. She's rich, which all the Georges, apart from George III, but all the Georges were all about money. She's rich. She's well connected. She was also his cousin. Not a surprise. Fashion. Yeah. Well, he's kind of after fashion. Yeah, she'd been raised by his auntie, his mm-hmm. dad's mom, dad's sister. But again, that actually made them quite happy because it's keeping it, you know, all in the family, as it were. Yeah. Um, one way or another, and. That the marriage was on and hopefully we hope was going to be successful time will tell but that wasn't her first proposal wasn't it no she'd had quite a few um and because she wanted as well she she had what was nice about this is unlike a lot of our georgian women she wasn't forced by anyone to go with what they wanted mm-hmm. she'd had some proposals that would have required her to change her faith which was something she spent a lot of time and a lot of soul searching thinking about um and again, when we look at the letters she wrote, for such a young woman as she was when she was writing them, they're incredibly erudite and intelligent and show a huge understanding of philosophy and sort of wrestling with her faith. But she too, she had seen you know, her own mother's terrible time that she'd had. I think she'd had to grow up because obviously in that era, we know people grew up faster. She'd had this horrible lesson of watching this quite sparky woman essentially ground into dust you know, by this horrendous fella. So she held out as well for the person she wanted. And when Monsieur de Bush turned up, that was the man. So whether she knew who he was, though, I have my suspicions that she did. She may have, yeah. I think it was more important to her to get someone that she felt she could actually be happy with. She did get that with George. It was a funny sort of happiness by our standards when we look at the marriage, but it did work. He did have affairs from now that just wouldn't really be acceptable to a lot of people. I know some people are quite happy. <laughs> you do, yeah. But is that is was that something that would be normal? Was she okay with that? She was okay. I mean, she'd been raised by Sophia Charlotte in Prussia. I said Sophia Dorothea earlier. Sophia Charlotte. That's just all the Sophias. And she'd been raised in royal households. And at the time, having mistresses for a king or for a royal man was part of the course. Mm-hmm. They were, you know. In fact, George III didn't have mistresses and he was seen as a little bit iffy on that. 
Um, what's interesting about George II is that when they were a couple in Hanover, when they were first married, he didn't initially have mistresses. And she became quite early on clearly a strong figure in his life. Very early on, a strong um, advisor. He went to her, as he did throughout his life, with difficult decisions. He would talk through things with her, political matters, matters of state. And there started to be some whispers that she was too dominant, that because he had no mistress, because he took advice from her, that he was seen as being a weak man. So, yes, that's when he started taking mistresses. Because it's a weird thing for us, because obviously if now, can you imagine if the king or the heir to the throne had openly taken mistresses, mm-hmm. it would be you know, a huge thing. He started to take mistresses so he could prove, you know, I'm the man, I'm the man of the relationship. Because of how she'd been raised, she just took it as a fact of life. It's, you know, I'm sure, I think we too often dismiss it as, oh, she would have been happy with it because it was a fact of life. But I don't know that any spouse would be happy with it. You probably just would say, you know, you kind of have to rationalise it, don't you? that in her time, in her upbringing, in everything that she'd been taught, this was just something that happened. A bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> she had less, if you like, threat from the mistresses mm. than she actually had from um, uh, George I and his mother, Sophia Dorothea, who was a hus- obviously her grandmother-in-law. She actually felt that they were more, that they posed more of a threat, if you like, because Sophia of Hanover, the grandmother, she was obviously, she was actually the heir to the throne of England at the time. Mm. Um, but she died before she took it. And she was completely no-nonsense. You know, she was waspish. She told it like it was. She had been married to someone who had multiple mistresses, you know, multiple really powerful, open, powerful mistresses as well at court. And she essentially kind of had a lot of influence over what was going on as well. Because with George I's official wife, the divorce being locked up, there was no technical wife. So she fulfilled that role, even though there was a mistress. Mm. And George I and his son had a really fractious relationship. But Caroline knew that if she went straight to her husband and said, these two have got too much influence, he would push against it. So she was smart enough to kind of win him over by being what she knew he wanted, which was just to support, because he was dominated by this father. He got, didn't, you know, it's a really difficult relationship because he locked his mother up. So she was just there for him in every way. And he soon came to see that she was giving good advice, that she was smart. And she knew, I think, that mistresses will come and go. And she particularly knew this with her husband as the years went on because he was very capricious. He was very changeable. He swapped favourites left, right and centre. And she knew that her position, he had different mistresses that he would kind of go to bed with and in the end would use them as people to just complain to. And she quite liked that because it meant that she got a quiet life and could do what she wanted. Yeah. And when he wanted to have a really good bitch about someone, he'd just go and see his mistress and be like, eh, eh, eh. and by the time he came back to his wife, he got all that out of his system. So it's, maybe for her it worked. You know, it was quite useful. <laughs> he just kind of used mistresses as his own little um, therapists. <laughs> yeah, he did. He yeah. actually did. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get on to Henrietta Howard, but Henrietta Howard, he started with this great passion where he'd be outside her door exactly the right hour every night and he'd go in and they'd, all sorts of things and then eventually it got to the point that when he went he'd turn up late and he'd spend an hour just moaning and he'd moan about her and he'd moan about the courtiers and he'd moan about what was going on and you just think oh god imagine that you know imagine (laughs) and everyone will go what a glamorous life she's mistress to a king you're just going to spend an hour with this guy just fetching and moaning (laughs) like a ventilator (laughs) yes yeah and he had as well this infamous hot temper and he would 
when he used to use his temper, he'd take off his wig and he'd kick it around the room. And she'd just sit there while he did it. And kind of, you know, I think just kind of let it blow out. And then she'd say, like, now we'll actually solve the political problem that they're in. Yeah. She's the queen. I feel like she would have been a fantastic politician. And, you know, she would have just, if she could have been in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, whatever, she would have knocked some heads together because she just wasn't here for it. She was just here for getting the job done. She came to England, she she really embraced the English way of life, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, She'd seen as well that George I, who did the opposite, Mm -hmm. had been really not popular because obviously, you know, people just understandably said, this guy, who is he? You know, he's, yeah. he, how how is he the king? Yeah. And how he's, he's arrived with a hundred German courtiers. He's bought his own traditions. He's bought famously, you know, we always say couldn't speak English. He could speak English, but he chose not to, which might tell you something about him. He's bought his own ways of doing things. He's Whereas they came and they really quickly read the room and they said, right, we've got to be English. And this is something that trickled down to George III, you know, really important to push the point that you are English. And it worked. And they became incredibly fashionable because I think as well, they were very different characters. George I was this kind of crusty, you know, bad-tempered. He'd sit there with a face like thunder. And his mistress, although completely harmless, she was exactly the same. They they weren't good-humoured. They weren't like, like today, everyone's really media savvy. No. They weren't. But his son and Caroline, they they really were. They absolutely knew how to play the public. If it were today, they'd have like a massive Instagram account, you know. <laughs> yeah. They would be the darlings. They'd always be trending on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, as Prince and Princess of Wales, they were the yeah, they were the public face of the monarchy, which really actually annoyed George the First. Because he sat there, he couldn't understand why people didn't like him. He was like, How how is it that when I sit here with a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, with my arms folded, just glowering at everyone. How can people don't don't warm to me? <laughs> what could it be that they're not warming to? And the more they warmed to his son, who he just didn't get along with, mm. the more annoyed he got, and the more the more happy, and the more I think the more extravagant at being warmed to the prince and princess of Wales got. You know, because I think being popular is addictive. And the funny thing, of course, George II eventually went exactly the same way as his father into this glowering, miserable thing. But they very quickly got very, very used to being public darlings, very quickly. Mm, I think it's one of the things, it's history repeating itself. It's more so with the Georgians, but you can see it in modern royalty as well, and she does as well. People always go for the, the sun that's rising, not the one that's setting. Yes, yeah, yes, I like that. Yeah. yeah, that's what Elizabeth the first was uh, always saying. Just right. when she didn't want to name the heir, because I want people to love me, not the, yeah. <laughs> not my successor. So love me. <laughs> very honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very honest. And I think it's quite difficult because while all this was going on, and they were the public darlings behind the scenes, you know, there was Caroline had stillbirths and one that nearly killed her, and she kept on going out. She'd go, you know, she she'd go back out in public. And I think had to sort of paint on the smile, which again, we all know in modern royalty, you know, people want the myth, don't they? They don't want Mm. the reality. They don't want to know that behind the scenes, there's awful, tragic things happening. Mm. They want to say, look at these, the the, the glittering light of, you know, they're the next generation of royalty. We don't want to know about the misery. Mm. And I think that's probably incredibly hard, you know, especially because when they came to England, they had to leave their son in Hanover. 
So they left Frederick. George I wanted them to come to England, basically to prepare, you know, because he mm. wasn't getting any younger. Um, but he also wanted a figurehead in Hanover. So he said, your son, who's like seven, Frederick, he has to stay. And I think that must be a massive wrench. You know, she was really close to her son. And to then come to England and not see him again for years and years and years. And then, you know, not to have a child to replace him, but to, if, you know, you're a royal wife, you're expected mm. to have babies. And these pregnancies are really difficult. And, and all the time, you know that your father-in-law is going to Hanover, which he was, and dripping poison into Frederick's ear about George II. You know, it's not today. We can't just, we can't, it's not like you can counter that with a phone call or something. No. But George I was moulding Frederick to be, he was moulding him to basically dislike his own father, George II. So yeah. really, really, really twisted family dynamic. Yes. Very <laughs> twisted. And it's this kind of poison. If you look at the kings and Frederick, who didn't get it. The poison just drips from mm. one generation to the next. And, you know, I'm sure we've all seen that in families that we know. Yeah, the generational curses. And they were, the Georgians were really good at that. Really. <laughs> they, they held on to them tight. Oh, they did, you know, four <laughs> generations. In fact, yeah, they were still doing it right up to the end. They were. If you slighted a Georgian king, you slighted all the Georgians. But it was weird because if you disliked George the First, then George the Second loved you. Mm. But then something would happen that you'd probably fall out with George II, in which case Frederick would probably be told he should, although he hated George II. It's just, yeah, this generational drip of venom. Yeah. yeah. It'd make a great drama. It really wow. I, don't, I don't know why. You know, people, people talk about the Tudors with it, but the Georgians, they, they yeah. had it to spare as well. Yes. Yeah. The Wars of the Waleses, and then you have Victoria, who also had troubles with yes. her eldest son. So I think, yeah, the Netflix, again, please do this. Sons again. It's always sons. Always sons. <laughs> always yeah. sons. I know. It will actually be interesting to see what Williams like with George. Oh, God, yeah. But I suppose it's that thing as well, that if you grow up, as to some degree they all have, more so now than mm. ever, but if you grow up with the media staring at everything you do, yeah, that arguments in families that would just go just become like huge, don't they? Because on the front pages, and you know, and especially when you've got people, you know, a source said, yes, mm -hmm. a helpful source said, you know, I was in a cafe just this morning and I heard a woman, I put this on Twitter, a woman said to a friend, Tell me what you've heard about him, and I promise I won't say anything. <laughs> and the friend told her what she'd heard. And several people on Twitter said, what did she say? And I said, no, I just can't tell you because it's like, I can't say what this is. It's not that big of a deal. Probably you don't know the guy. Yeah. But at the same time, now she's created a source. So now her friend's totally going to go and tell probably her partner what she's heard. 100%. <laughs> and we live in a small village. So it's going to go like, nee. <laughs> and it's going to go all around. From, that's why on Twitter, I was like, I'm not telling you what I heard. Because the chance of anyone that knows me being on there is minuscule. But I know there's one or two people. <laughs> and they'll yeah. know who they're talking about as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes around like Chinese whispers. As queen, she acted as regent, so she had quite a lot of power compared to other, other Georgian queens. I think as well, she just, you know, she continued educating herself mm -hmm. throughout as well. And I think it helped that because she did have a really keen and intelligent brain, not to say the likes of Charlotte didn't, but mm. she didn't really have, and we can see this in her mothering, she didn't really have a huge interest in just being a queen like Charlotte mm. did. But she was, yeah, she never stopped educating herself. She had, you know, an immense library. She had an endless procession of great thinkers that would come to her. And they wouldn't come to her and talk at her, you know, as these great learned men. Yeah. It was very much an exchange of ideas. Um, because I think they knew as well, you know, 
there was a respect for her intelligence. I'm sure there were some people who thought, who is this queen who thinks that she can... Mm. And I think there's probably some people as well that went along with it because she was queen. But I think that when you have an interest in, whether it's philosophy or whatever it is, that when you talk to someone who obviously is as keen as you and as learned as you, that that is in itself, it's hard to resist. Yeah. And she probably broke a lot of the barriers that she faced. As I say, being queen helps. Let's not lie about that. Yeah. But yeah, she served as regent, which much to when Frederick came over to England finally, Frederick had not seen his parents for years and was very much not a person they recognised and vice versa because he had been moulded just as George I wanted. And unfortunately, when Frederick arrived, he was kind of the spare part. By this time, she had other children. You know, she had, it's awful to say, but she kind of, I think she gave up on him. Because her husband and his father at one point had a fairly catastrophic split, Mm. they'd set up, if you like, an alternate court to George I's court, which was seen as the young, glamorous court. And they were openly in opposition to each other. So they'd created, if you like, their own little party and their own little group and their, their children had become part of it. Often Hanover, the son they'd left behind just became, if you like, an adjunct to George the First Court. So it created a huge issue because she was made regent whenever her husband was away, which is something that Frederick very much expected to be his role after George the First died. And I think to me, it makes perfect sense that he chose Caroline. If we had, if we were monarchs mm. and we had a spouse who had proven time and again that they were really, really good at identifying the mood, getting to the hit in the heart of the matter, getting it right. And then we had a family member who had essentially been trained to hate us, that we would probably choose the spouse above the family member who hated us. But because Frederick was a young man and he was as you know young and dumb and full of gung-ho, really held it against her and against his father. The more she had this power, which she enjoyed, and she left everyone in no doubt that she enjoyed it, I think it once again, we're back on this thing of the family schism. Mm. It's getting wider and wider and wider. But I don't also think we should sort of let that cloud the fact that she was just a really smart queen. Let's not let the fact that her son acted like a baby (laughs) really cloud the fact that she was an incredibly smart queen yeah what was her um, relationship like with her other children she was really close with her other children because she had some terrible challenges with them you know with obviously smallpox Mm -hmm. which she had seen ravage her own family she had a real interest in treatments for smallpox and was really keen on protecting against it. Um, so she had good relationships with other children. And I think, again, that, you know, we always come back to this, that, that in itself widens the fracture again. But it's a funny one because she was, I think she was in some ways quite a distant mother. But in others, she was also clearly really bonded and really loved her husband and children. But there was always an arm's length to it. Because it's in a way, it's what we would expect of the king. And we don't actually criticise the king. I think that Caroline has caught some flack because of that. Yeah, yeah. But as you said, if that was the king, it would be expected. Yeah, exactly. That we expect the king to do it because he's the king. Whereas we go, oh, well, you know, should a queen really do that? Should she not Mm -hmm. be? Should she not be loving and caring and all of the above? And it's like, yes, yeah, she can be that. But also sometimes women have 
different priorities. Yeah. And it's possible to be maternal in a way, but not maternal in the way that Charlotte was, which, as we know, yeah. was in itself quite damaging. Because mm. it's funny how um, Queen Elizabeth II, she, she got the same flack and she was in yeah. the starring role. Like she was basically king. The world kind of expected her to be maternal and all encompassing womanhood. Yeah, it's interesting as well because it's kind of like you're. On the one hand, you have to perform your role. And obviously, mm. you know, Elizabeth II was Queen Regnant. But in the Georgian era, Caroline was pretty much that role. It's, it's a strange one because I think nowadays when people talk about royal children, it's very much, as you can imagine, very much encouraged to be more hands-on. And we know that Princess Diana kind of started that. Yeah. Or started that in a more public way so people mm. could see it happening. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about the crown earlier and that's very judgy in a very quiet way about how the queen treats the children whereas prince philip is shown being a little bit off with prince charles but he kind of mm-hmm. gets a free pass yeah and i think it's that same thing you know when i've heard husbands talk about oh i'm babysitting tonight so my wife can go out and you know they're your kids too yeah they're your kids it's, mm-hmm. and i think it's that kind of thing especially in that era though that in that era women were supposed to be a certain way you know, and Caroline wasn't that. And we're going to get on to the second Caroline, and she definitely wasn't that. She far and away wasn't that. That's why she's Miranda. <laughs> yeah, as I now know. And I think the thing with Caroline and her children, Caroline of Ansbach and her children, is that they grew up in that household with the mother she was. Yeah. So they at least had that understanding. And when it came to the crunch, you know, there were terrible things happened. When they left, when George I kicked them out, he refused to let the kids go with him. We saw then, we see then that Caroline was distraught. You know, it didn't matter. The, the alternate court didn't matter. The public adulation didn't matter. All she wants to be with the kids. And she managed to convince one of the, um, the nannies to secretly smuggle her in so she could see them. Eventually, unfortunately, one of the children became terribly ill. And it was that that eventually reconciled the two halves of family because George I let her back in to see the children. I think that shows that, you know, she didn't only want to see them when her child was ill. She was distraught and there's an argument where people said well she still went with her husband she still left them hmm. but what a decision I think she if you she went knowing that they would be given excellent care she wasn't you know leaving them yeah she was leaving them in fantastic care with a team she trusted and that must have been a really difficult decision and I think she went knowing that she'd be able to get back in mm-hmm. and we can never mm-hmm. truly know and of course you know I'm I'm not a mother I can't speak as a mother but I think that I've, you know, I've heard from some readers who would said, I can't believe she left her kids, that it's beyond the pale. So I can't speak from that angle. But we do know that the decision, you know, was absolutely wrenching for her. Mm. But she just constantly was obsessed with seeing her children. So I think that, you know, some people have said she didn't have a maternal instinct. I think she did. But I think it was not as pronounced as the likes of Queen Charlotte. Yeah, I think she was in a walk in a hard place kind of a thing. She had to keep on George's good side, her husband, George, at the end of the day. They were going to be together for the rest of their life. Yeah. If he she went against him, she might never see her children again. Exactly. And obviously she'd have the lesson of yeah. George's own mother. Yeah. She went against her husband and never saw her children again. Exactly. We know what happens. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, you've yeah. seen it. And although that was obviously an extreme example, mm. they had form. And I think she knew as well that she knew that her father-in-law had kept his own children from seeing their mother. Yep. So you also need to keep on side with him to some degree. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to, and again, we see this sort of political queen. It is politi- It's political decision-making that you have to maybe take a hit now to know that suffer now, 
but in the long term you're going to be able to iron it out as opposed to make a stand now and as you say potentially never see your kids again Mm -hmm. or that he do exactly what he did with Frederick which is turn him against you which he was really good at Plus, yeah, she was leaving them with the king, not at the back of a church or something. Exactly, yeah. And an (laughs) orphanage. So they didn't need her for sustenance. It's not like she was going to keep breastfeeding them or something. So they will be well-fed, they will be well-dressed, they will be, Mm -hmm. you know, educated, etc. And they're left with people that she already knows, you know, like a team of nurses and governesses that she's been involved in choosing. I think sometimes it's it's presented, especially in, you know, much older writings about Mm -hmm. her, it's presented as... Oh, what a terrible woman. But that's, you know, that's the kind of simplicity sometimes you might see. But I'm sure, you know, it's not a decision anyone would make. But as you say, she's leaving them where she knows they're going to be warm, fed, cared for. She's also playing with two people with incredibly hot tempers, two Georges, one of which she's going to be with for decades to come, potentially. Mm -hmm. The other one of which has got form for completely severing families. What a decision. What a thing to be torn between. Yeah. Gemma, yeah. would you leave your kids with the king? <clears throat> they would leave me for the king. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <Bye>, mom. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> what's next? <laughs> what's interesting with her as well is one of her daughters, which we don't see a lot of. We've seen her grow up um, with Fia Charlotte and become quite learned. But her own daughter, as she got older, went the opposite way and became really entitled. And I just think that like, I feel like drama is missing a beat here because she became this sort of like a Paris Hilton (laughs) yeah she became a real brat which one oh it was the princess royal and she became a real real but she really loved being the princess royal because you know who wouldn't yeah and she just treated princess Anne. she treated her ladies like dirt Mm. she made them stand up for hours and hours at a time she used to take entertainment in treating them really badly and what's interesting is that we actually see here that Caroline, I actually love this, was completely no nonsense. So she got lots of reports about the Princess Royal's terrible behaviour. Mm. And, you know, quite often we see parents of entitled children go, ah, it's not really my problem. Chardonnay, please stop doing that. Exactly that. Exactly <laughs> that. It's not my problem. We're not going to see it. You know, I've seen it again in the coffee shop I go in. I've seen <laughs> parents sitting there and their kids are throwing, literally throwing entire meals on the floor. And they're filming it, going, ah. And when they leave, they don't ask for a broom or a dustpan. They just leave it. Yeah. And it's that kind of entitled thing, like, you know, we, we're paying for this. Not so, Caroline. So she summoned her daughter to a chamber. And she basically said, you know, I hear that you like to keep people standing and waiting around. So you can just stand and wait around on me for the rest of the day. And she just <laughs> made her act like a lady in waiting, but a really ill-treated lady in waiting. Yeah. For the rest of the day. And I absolutely love that. She like wouldn't let her sit down. She wouldn't let her eat. She wouldn't let her drink. She gave a real dose of her own medicine and basically said, you know, if I hear get reports like this again, we'll do this again. And it was just an excellent bit of parenting. Mm-hmm. And also a good bit of parenting, unlike the ones the Georges practiced, which was kind of like ridiculously over the top wars of attrition. It was like short and sharp and it worked. Yeah. You know, she wasn't above wars of attrition of herself, as we know, because we're relationship with Frederick. But I think it points up that she was a really down-to-earth woman for all her philosophy. And, you know, mm. she was also really down-to-earth. And I think she obviously had benefited off being a public favourite. So the last thing you want is rumours getting out that your daughter's an absolute mare. Yeah, and we saw, we see her stand up to Henrietta Howard, her husband's mistress. Henrietta Howard's husband was an infamous brute. Caroline had Henrietta Howard as a lady-in-waiting. Now, she actually did treat her quite badly. 
that she passive aggressively treated her badly because she was a favorite mistress. Mm. So she'd make her kneel. Part of her duty was to kneel and hold up this huge wash basin. And quite often the queens didn't make them kneel. They'd let them sort of stand or put it down, you know. Mm. But she made them kneel. She would clean out her teeth and flick it at her. <laughs> But when Henrietta Howard's husband attempted to essentially hijack Queen Caroline in a carriage, despite she wrote herself that she was terrified, but she completely stood up to him. And he was, you know, saying, I'm going to do this and that, and I'm going to make life healthier. And she basically said, if you don't get out of this carriage now, I'll pick you up and I'll throw you out the window. And she said, I was terrified, but I wasn't letting him know that. And I think that's probably the secret to Caroline's queendom is that she probably had her doubts and she had a nervousness and she had moments when she was terrified. But she never let it show. There's a power in that, I think. Oh, definitely. What was her public persona like? They liked her at first, and then she got to be seen to be too big for her boots. So she got, she was very close with Robert Walpole, mm. who was an incredibly powerful politician. He became what we would recognize as the first prime minister. Mm. He was very powerful, he was very divisive, and he was very good at storing things up now to use later as bargaining chips. So, you know, he knew where the bodies were buried, as they say. And she and Walpole had a really tight relationship that they, she would advise the king in favour of Walpole's policies. He would take sort of, if you like, weather reports from her on what would go down well and what would. And as this became more and more apparent, the public started to turn against her. Because once again, as back in Hanover before George had a mistress and it was seen that she was had too much power. So there's a point at which the public said, we don't really want this woman to have all this power. And I think it wasn't that she wasn't, if you like, the crowned head as such. I think it was down to being a woman as well. But she was seen as having too much power. And People then started to ask a lot of questions about her relationship with her oldest son. Again, that just as she had split off from George I, Frederick and his wife split off from George II. And it all started to get very publicly, very messy. So we see um, incidences in which effigies of the Queen were burned in the streets and effigies of Walpole. And whenever bad decisions were made at the palace, people started to blame her. Mm. So they'd say, well, you know, maybe if the king listened to his own advice, maybe if he listened to some of the advisors and didn't listen to the queen, these decisions wouldn't be made. We actually now know that that's pretty much nonsense. Yeah, she got too popular. And I think, again, we see that now, you know, we are super good at building someone up. And then when they get too popular, we kind mm. of rip them back down again. And that's what happened to her. And it really shook her. And it shook her to the degree that she refrained from, she, she didn't, so kind of retire from public life, but she got, again, much more savvy about what got into the public arena. So she got much more savvy about making it look like the decisions weren't influenced by her at all, which is interesting that George II was actually, he didn't really like that because he was really proud of her. And he absolutely, you know, it's funny because he had all these mistresses and all this, but he absolutely adored her and respected her so much for her intelligence but he also recognized that this kind of backlash against her was really hurting her hmm. so he it's funny that he let himself take the credit for some things which he was already really good at but he did that and eventually as it always does it kind of died down a bit and then when she did come out again people went oh it's the queen you know we've not seen her for a bit 
what was interesting is what she and her husband had done with George I started to happen to her. So Frederick, the Prince of Wales, and his wife, Augusta, when they came to England, they were very popular and they started to play exactly the same game. They were seen out and about. They presented themselves as incredibly English. They, it was almost, you know, play by play what we'd already seen. And as they now found that when you are the ruling heads, it's on you. So any bad decisions, anything the public doesn't like, now suddenly you're getting the blame. And now you've got somebody young and glamorous and popular snapping at your heels. And sadly, again, we see the relationship just completely crumble again. You know, when Frederick died, the reaction of the parents was like, "Eh, we don't really care. Uh, I mean, she was already dead by then, but the king didn't care. It's sad to me as a historian writing about these families because you start to see, as I say, history really repeated exactly the same way and bad decisions being made again. And when this gets out into public arena, people again start to take sides. As we now see, you know, we see it with mm. uh, Prince Charles' son. King Charles, God, yeah. We see the public take sides and there's no grey area. It's either you're that side or you're this side. And yeah. no one can be in the, I mean, people are in the middle. Yeah. But no one really is allowed to be in the middle. And when that happened to her, I think because she had known the adulation and because she had been, nine, not always, some of the decisions didn't work out, but she had pretty successful hit rate as a politician but when things went wrong you don't really have a mechanism for dealing with it so her mechanism for dealing with it was to keep on rolling and she kind of preoccupied herself by getting into these huge arguments with her son instead because obviously that's going to help everyone but she was again pretty unapologetic about it but she did own her bad decisions and I think you know when we read what she left behind what letters we can still see and when we read the memoirs of people that knew her and were close to her she didn't let herself off the hook either if she made a bad call that she was pretty reflective she was still a queen so mm. that still came with a hefty dough for well you know yeah i'm still a queen but she was reflective in a way that her husband never was that he just mm. kept bowling along and blaming everyone else but she was fairly self-reflective so on her deathbed she she forgave us son, didn't she yes yeah, she did um and she you know she died a horrible horrible death yeah really horrible death yeah she did, but her husband didn't. Mm. And people that had wronged her that came to see her, you know, if they came to see her to try to say goodbye to her, they weren't allowed in. So George II's relationship with Caroline is absolutely fascinating because to us, as we say, as modern people, modern women, the fact that her husband had mistresses, multiple mistresses, makes us say, well, did he love her? Could he love her? We know that when she was dying, you know, it's very easy to love someone then, isn't it? But yeah, he was that aside the entire time. And her health had been failing for quite a long time. What eventually did for her was an operation on, effectively during an operation earlier to mend a hernia, some tissue had started to die inside her. So she had an operation and in the finest tradition of Georgian medicine, they got it horrendously wrong. They opened up her abdomen and they found that part of her bowel had died and was rotting. And all they did was cut it out and they didn't join the two ends. Hmm. So they basically left her her intestine open. What happens when you do that is all of the waste just seeps out into your body. And, you know, we know that it started to seep out of the wounds and the palace smell of death, you know, all this. But she kept on advising the king that she just wouldn't admit how bad it was. Now, I think a lot of that is down to, we've seen, you know, we've heard about this, you know, people just cannot, it's a terrible thing to admit, but you know you're dying. And she kept on going, but she gathered a family to her. George refused to let anyone in, I say, that had wronged her. 
but he stayed with her right to the end and famously told her as almost a dying breath I'll never marry again I'll only have mistresses (laughs) and people say what that's a terrible thing to say but that's actually for a Georgian king that was an enormous declaration of love and respect you know that there can never be another you there will only ever be a procession of temporary mistresses (laughs) because she had said to you must marry again yeah Yeah. I think because she knew that he wasn't the world's best decision maker on his own. Yeah. And that he was very, he was very biddable mm. by the likes of Walpole. And, you know, but he said, no, no more wives, just mistresses. And, and that's, I think that's amazing because, I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not even dying. And I am already going to tell my other half, don't even look at another woman. I'm dead. <laughs> One, you mourning for life. <laughs> I love that. So what like, going to come me? back and haunt you, you know? Yep. It's a funny one because I feel like she, Someone asked me, I, can't, I think it was on a Twitter interview or something. They said something about which queen would have been the best queen regnant. And it's, mm-hmm. it's her. Yeah. I think if she'd have been prime minister, you know, because there's still, when you have to filter through Robert Walpole, he was more than a match for anyone. He was mm-hmm. absolutely the quintessential, if you think about a politician. Mm. But I think that she had the capacity in her to be a real powerhouse, you know, an Elizabeth I. Mm-hmm. We never know. We're never going to know. No. She did make bad decisions. You know, she was, there were riots caused by some of the things that she came up with. Yeah. But given what we later saw of the hit rate of some of George II's successors, she was more queen than certainly George IV was king, you know. Yeah. And we'll get on to that. <laughs> Anyone. Yeah. <laughs> this plant is a better king yes. than George IV. Sadly true. So what do you think that Caroline's legacy should be? I think Caroline's legacy should be, it's what I would recognise as a modern consort. Mm. Someone who is, I think, you know, a very similar sort of consort to the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. Someone who is both, you know, although there were mistresses and the like in this marriage, who is a mate, who is trusted, who is an advisor. I think the Duke of Edinburgh probably benefited from being much more as you know, because years have rolled on, more mm. savvy in terms of the media, he benefited from being male. But what we would recognize as a modern consort, probably actually more vocal than a modern consort. Mm. But I think her legacy should be of probably one of the best queens, one of the best political queens of her century, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. RIP oh. Caroline. Yeah. I know. And now a brief message from a friend of the podcast. At Old Royal Naval College, there's currently an exhibition entitled Coalescence, and it contains two and a half thousand pieces of coal, as much as an electric bulb would use in a year. This majestic display is temporarily housed in one of the most gorgeous rooms in the whole country, Painted Hall, which some call the British Sistine Chapel. Hurry, the exhibit ends soon. Back to the other Royal Georgians. So Caroline of Brunswick, could not hey. be further apart from Caroline of Hansback. They were talking cheese. Tell us about this Caroline's childhood. This Caroline's childhood, where do we even begin? <laughs> Probably Germany. Germany. <laughs> this Caroline's childhood. She had the misfortune to be an incredibly fun-loving, <laughs> extroverted young lady being raised by a mother who thought that children, particularly girls, should be seen and not heard unless they were praying. Her behaviour very quickly became cause for concern. Mm. 
Now, whether her behaviour became cause for concern because it was cause for concern or because her mother had very, very, very strict views on what mm. girls should be is a matter for debate. Her mother was Princess Augusta of Great Britain, who was the sister of King George III eventually. And she had been married off to the future Duke of Wolfenbuttel. And when she got there, she had found that her husband, Charles William, loved to party and he loved women and he loved all the things that she hated. And, you know, it was a real wrench. She's gone from the only life she's ever known to a completely different country, mm. found a husband who's gone, yeah, we're getting married, but it's not that kind of a marriage. You know, this was very much an arranged marriage. It was a dynastic marriage. What do you do? You know, she was desperate to come back to England. And just as George I had refused to become English, she refused to become German. So she upheld English tradition. She spoke English. She, you know, and just as George I had found, people don't like it. Mm -hmm. It's very isolating. The problem was as well that as she was self-isolated and she found the husband's court very isolating because it was a hedonistic court. So if you're already out of your depths, maybe you're just not a hedonist and you find out that your new husband is all about literally women and wine and song. What do you do? Well, if you are Princess Augusta, you just become incredibly religious. So she basically retreated into a reclusive religious lifestyle. She tried to interest her husband in the same. And you can imagine how that went. She would spend hours praying. And when she was praying, he would be off with his mistresses and what we would call cavorting. So Caroline had this relationship with her parents that was distant because her mother was focused almost entirely on religion and her father was focused almost entirely on women. So as a young princess, what do you do? And what Caroline did was start to play up. But she, her mother put her in the care of women who were just like her. And mm. she was said, she's not allowed to even look out the window when there's going to be a ball because I don't want you to even see the hedonism. And of course, as children, that would mean all you wanted to do was see what was going on. It's and like the she, trapped Princess Anna yes. in Frozen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All she wanted to do. Do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> yes, that's it. She started to get unwell with it and they wrote it off and said it's hysteria. Instead oh, of saying maybe it's because we're keeping her locked up. Can you imagine being a young, getting to be an adolescent girl? That she was told the things she was interested in, you're they're not appropriate for girls. She loved to do woodworking and things like that. You're not supposed to be doing that. It's not appropriate. You shouldn't be doing it. Instead of nurturing it mm. and saying, you know, we barely let her out of the house. So the least we could do is let her do this. And when she did go out, she'd go on visits to local poor orphans. And then they started to spread rumors that, oh, she's actually having sex with the woodcutters and things like that. This kind of followed her through life. Mm. And, you know, maybe later on, she maybe would have been having sex with the woodcutters. Yeah. When she was young, she just wanted to get out. Yeah. For the first time in forever, literally. Sorry, you're just yeah. <laughs> the film is just going through my head now. Yeah, it's, it's the same. <laughs> but she just wanted to get out. And she then started to really play up. And one of my favorite stories is that she decided she wanted to go to a ball. And the parents said, there is no way. So she painted her face like green and drew spots on it and put a pillow up her dress and then started rolling on the floor and screaming that she was pregnant and she needed to have a midwife and that there was something wrong with her. 
her parents were taken in and they called a doctor. And when the doctor arrived, she wiped the papers off her face and took the pill out and was like, ha ha, psych. <laughs> and the only effect this had was for her parents to now go, she is completely mad. Mm. She is absolutely mad. But I think what it was, to be honest, is she wanted to just really embarrass them mm. because they had this ball, they were all the great and the good were there. And she raised in hell, you know, doctors are called. It's to me that, you know, we've all heard of, you know, when kids just really want to embarrass their parents yep. and just start acting up. This mm. was just like an extreme acting out, I, I think, personally. Mm. But obviously stories like this, given that then George III became unwell, stories like this start going, well, maybe she's got the same. Yeah. Maybe she's the same. And she began to gain a reputation, the worst reputation for a royal daughter of being unmarriageable. Because, mm. you know, that everyone that came was unimpressed because they'd heard stories. She, her story when she's young makes me just really sad. Yeah. She's just like she just wanted to get out and live life. Yeah. And, you know, we talked to her about Queen Charlotte and her daughters. I mean, can you imagine if she looked up against Queen Charlotte? Oh, my yeah. God. We think she had romances. She seemed to have a romance with a hussar who was unnamed. Whether that's true, who knows? Because she loved to gossip later on. She loved to, you know, I can just see her putting out like a, sort of Diana tell-all book kind yeah. of thing. She loved to tell-all. You know, you couldn't stop her telling all. So she would paint these pictures. But we do know that a lot of the pictures she painted, particularly of the kind of isolation, they were true. And if you think about it, if you're a kind of really lively girl, you're your dad's daughter. Mm. He's out there being wild. And you're locked in your room with someone who says, you should really be praying and close the shutters. Duh. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, great, because that's going to work, isn't yes, it? You know, yeah. That's yes, ma'am. That's really yeah. going to work. You know, mm. What they wanted, what her mother wanted was a, a Queen Charlotte type. Mm. And what she got was Carolina Brunswick. I mean, it's really confusing to have parents who are so different like that. I mean, that's wild. It is. Yeah. You know, we have to feel for her mother too. Mm. Because her mother sounds pretty impossible, but I think she just shut down. We talked about Caroline of Ansbach accepting the mistresses as part of life, but George II was at least discreet in yeah. the way that you know, expected to be. That you have mistresses, you know, it's just what we do. Mm. Whereas he was, you know, wild. He mm. was just absolutely wild. And what do you even do with that information? Mm. You know, how do you, you know, she visited it on her daughter. So Caroline then, she said, you can come out at court because you have to if you get married, but you have to sit, you can't speak. Basically, she was told, don't let anyone know what you're like, which is actually awful. Yeah. That's essentially what she was told, that just sit, be silent. We don't want people to know what you're like. I can mm. imagine that as a young woman. Awful. And there's very few early biographies of her that aren't horribly judgmental. Mm. And take the mickey out of her and call her, they call her mad. And they talk about her being, you know, fast and loose and sleeping around. And really, the only evidence for that is that they fueled each other. So mm. they were kind of like, you know, they're very, very pro-George the Fourth biographies. And therefore, they take the anti-Caroline stance, which is to present her as exactly what George the Fourth said she was, which mm. is actually what George the Fourth himself was. Ironically. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I always think it's quite interesting because even if she was like that as a teenager, that nowadays we would see that as pretty normal behaviour for her upbringing. Yeah. She has a product of her upbringing and that yeah. would be normal. She's just like, I think even if at the worst, if we believe the worst, she was just like a wild child. Yeah. And again, you know, as we just said, that that's if you're, she was restricted to such a degree that it's hardly surprising that it kind of boosts out of her, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Because 
Yeah. What's going to happen? I guess the answer is that if your spirit doesn't break, which hers never broke, mm-hmm. that you're going to kick against that. And she yeah. really, well, all her life she did. Yeah. The Princess Augusta thing, uh, when you said she shut down and retreated into prayer, it reminds me of that theory I read in Jordan Peterson's book. Uh, and actually I've seen a few people in my life reacting like that. So it's a kind of lobster brain theory is that when the lobsters fight uh, and one of them loses and then the loser's brain gets sort of liquefied uh, and then basically they just become, yeah, literally a shell of themselves. So this is yeah. this this mm-hmm. is that because yeah. you have a formidable opponent, but there is nothing you can do except lose because you can't continue to be yourself. And yeah, it just basically gets liquefied. Yeah. I think there's something in that, to be honest. And we know because when Augusta came back to England, she clashed with Queen Charlotte. You know, she's, she had a habit of just clashing with people mm. because she had become yeah, very set in a very particular groove. She didn't move out of it at all. Yeah. I think that that's something you sometimes see, and particularly as we get older, that you become very set in your ways. Mm. And she and Caroline, they eventually did start to see eye to eye but they were always got on better when they didn't see each other regularly. And for a time they lived almost next door. So they didn't get on too well then, but they, they, they never saw eye to eye actually wrong, but they, I guess they reconciled to each other that each threw their hands up at the other and went, Oh, just have to kind of live with it. Yeah. Which maybe it's a shame they couldn't have done that decades earlier. <laughs> yeah. So how did the engagement of George come about? Who, thought that she would be a great queen yeah wasn't charlotte against it or, or something <laughs> yes well yeah well george the fourth as he was prince of wales at the time as we know just spent and spent and spent and spent and he married maria fitzherbert a secret marriage and word got round that he had had a secret marriage and his mother and father charlotte and george the third had this terribly pious terribly you know we don't want to rock the boat and we have this again a wild child kicking against how he'd been raised and we're tired of giving him money and when he came for another handout they said if you take, need the money this time you have to get married and we have to find your wife and George III's niece Caroline had had no luck in finding a husband George III thought well you know she's a safe bet because we know the family it keeps it in the family there's not going to be any trouble with money with anything because it's you know, very fond of marrying into the family because it mm. hopefully headed off problems further along. Didn't always work out that way. Charlotte, not keen on it at all. She had her own candidates in her own family that she wanted to marry. But as we know about Charlotte, that she didn't very often stand up to her husband. Not because she was bullied, but she again, she'd been trained. No. So Charlotte, not keen on it at all, but went along with it. And George IV was the least keen on it of all, or the Prince of Wales as well. He just didn't want to marry her because he'd heard all these rumors, as had Charlotte. The rumors were she was mad. She potentially had at least one illegitimate baby, again, by some unnamed soldier, woodcutter, who knew. Always the woodcutters. woodcutters. <laughs> Is there something we don't know? It was basically seen as it sews up a problem. It gets her married off, it gets him married off, yeah. and it keeps everything in the family. Because obviously, mm-hmm. marrying your own blood relations is such a good idea. Yes, yeah. How can that can't possibly go wrong, can it? <laughs> so that he agreed. He said, all right, I'll marry her. And from the off, he never really had any intention of it being anything other than marrying for money. Mm. But Caroline, and I think, you know, we have to feel for her here. Caroline thought, oh, this is so exciting. Yeah. You know, this is going to be amazing. The Princess of Wales going to be married to this 
as she thought, young, handsome, eligible bachelor, because obviously she'd been told she wasn't England reading all these reports. As far as she knew, he was like the, the fairy tale prince. But she soon started to hear that wasn't the case. And she started mm. to hear as she prepared to come over to England. She started to hear about he had this mistress, Lady Jersey, who was incredibly strong and incredibly powerful. As she was preparing to come over, she was brought over by an Englishman called uh, Lord Malmesbury. And his diaries are brilliant. He's incredibly urbane, long-suffering. And as soon as he gets to know her, he says, you know, he's quite open. He said, you know, she's really good company, but this marriage is going to be terrible. Hmm. That she is the absolute opposite to the man she's marrying. So the Prince of Wales, fastidious in clothing, dress, hygiene, everything, Caroline incredibly proud that she could accomplish her toilette in less than a minute. (laughs) She wore the same clothes for days. During the voyage to England, her tooth fell out and she wrapped it up and gave it to Lord Malmesbury as a gift. And he said that he wrote back to people saying, oh my God, you know, it's so inappropriate. Like, because her mother, interestingly, for all the restrictive upbringing, that had restricted her so much that they'd kind of gone, well, she's never going to get married because no one's going to want her. So we Mm. don't need to worry about the social niceties. Yeah, on the one hand, so she's refreshingly authentic. Mm. On the other hand, Lord Malmesbury, who wasn't, you know, he was quite a critic of George IV as well, so he was no friend of the husband-to-be. But at the same time, he knew him inside out, and he knew what he was like, and he very early on knew it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. And there's nothing, I, it's this inevitability, there's nothing he can do about it. His job is not to pass judgment, because at this point it's on, yeah. His mm. job is to go and fetch her, bring her back. And he wrote back to England and he said to people, you know, is there anything that can be done? And the answer was, no, of course there isn't. It's, she's just going to have to live with it. They're both just going to have to live with it. So bless her, she's coming to England, genuinely excited, genuinely feeling like I'm a bride-to-be, what's going to happen, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And already the groom-to-be is sat going, oh, I don't want to marry, I'm just want the money. I like her not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly <mayor. that. laughs> yeah. So she arrives in England. She's by this point heard, started to hear rumours about this attachment to Lady Jersey, to many other people, about these rumours of a marriage mm. to somebody else, you know. And at this point, it's a it's done, it's a done deal. Can you, you know, can you imagine you're going to meet your husband first time and someone says, Oh, you do know that he's already got at the very least very close mistresses and they're really powerful and they're really, oh, you know, you're You'd be terrified, I think. It's like going into the lion's den, isn't it? Yeah. And she was quite young, wasn't she? She was quite young, yeah. Um, I think she was young, not only physically, but mentally as well, because mentally, she'd been yeah. very restricted. Mm. And on the journey over, Malmesbury and the people with him tried to prepare her. So mm. they tried to say, you know, you need to take more care. Can you maybe take more care with your hair? Take more care with your, your washing, because there's a bit of a whiff. We're going to stop by boots, so... Exactly, (laughs) we're going to do all of this. Just your Um, basket, so you need a shower gel, you need a sponge, here we go, some wipes. A couple of months in which to completely retrain somebody to be somebody else. And firstly, that's not fair on her. Mm. But secondly, I think no matter what they would have presented the Prince of Wales with, he had already made up his mind. Yeah. All that they were fixated on was getting her presentable enough that by the time she gets to England... She's not going to embarrass herself, which is a pretty low bar, isn't it, really? She arrived in England, and the awful thing happened that George IV, keep going back, Prince Wales, sent to be her 
lady-in-waiting to be her closest person in England, his mistress, Lady Jersey. Hmm. So one of the most poisonous, manipulative, backbiting women at court, empire building, securing positions for her own family and herself, she's now your closest confidant. Well, it's kind Lady- of Barbara Villiers with Charles II, isn't it? When he appointed yes. her to be the the main lady to Catherine of Braganza. <laughs> yes, exactly yeah. that again. And she was charged with reporting back. Mm. And she brought with her a dress for Caroline to wear, which was about two sizes too small. They squeezed her into it. And she probably, let's go, she probably looked ridiculous, which Lady Jersey would have looked. She would have been in her element. And when it came to travelling in the carriage, she said, oh, no, no, I have to sit in what should be her position because I'll get travel sick if I sit in the other one. And at this point, Lord Malmesbury, friend to girls, jumped up and said, no, 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 we're not having that. If you have to sit facing that way, you can come in my carriage. You're not sitting in her place. So straight off, that's a strike against Caroline because now Lady Jersey has really got it in for her. Mm. And she later said that almost from the first minute of meeting her, she knew things were going to go badly. Yeah. Because Lady Jersey from behaved like she was going to be the queen. Mm. Because that's how she was treated. She was the favourite. And when you were the favourite of that particular Prince of Wales, he really loved his favourites to behave badly. He loved to see women against each other in competition yeah. for him. It tells you a lot about him. I'm, it, on the one hand, I really am a fan of his because he's so entertaining. But yeah. On a personal level, he's an absolute monster. Yeah. Going back to Charles II, he didn't let Barbara Villers uh, go up against his wife. He did take the side yeah. of his wife many times mm-hmm. and she was given her proper place as queen. But, which is exactly what happened with George II. That mm. He had mistresses, but they were very much, they weren't allowed to be like his wife. Like they weren't political. Yeah. They weren't, they were compartmentalized. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're, you know, you're lame. Yeah. No. Whereas George IV yeah. to be absolutely pitted them against each other. Yeah. And he had this thing, you know, I've written quite extensively about George IV on this, that he loved the chase was what he loved. Mm. And when he got the woman, he soon got really tired of her. But Lady Jersey stuck around for longer because she was incredibly dominant. She didn't kind of go, oh, you know, Prince of Wales, oh, fading. She was more like, right, Prince of Wales, what are you going to do for me there? Yeah. But she made Caroline's life miserable. And Caroline arrived to meet her husband. And this is one of the most famous meetings. You know, she was presented to him. And straight away, he started going, mommy, mommy. What's what is this? Like she smells and who what is I can't expect to marry her. Get me brandy. And he went running off to find his mum. At which point she started saying, Who's this fat man? You know, <laughs> in his portraits, he's gorgeous. Who is this? So awful. a bit of Photoshop, you know. Exactly. Georgian Photoshop. Oh. Awful beginning. And it went from bad to worse because they had a family dinner that night. And to be fair to the rest of the family, even Charlotte, they did try to make her feel welcome. Mm. But the crowds gathered outside the palace and they were shouting for Caroline. Yeah. And when George appeared at the window, they were like, and they kept shouting for Caroline. When she appeared at the window, they went nuts. And she loved it. And she loved it that much. She kept going back to the window until the Prince of Wales went to the window and said, she's not coming back, she'll catch a chill and slammed the window shut. So he was already, he was up against it. Mm. So you've got, and I think to anyone that's seen modern royals, Mm. it's a very familiar clash. You've got the very popular... Princess of Wales incoming and the unpopular Prince of Wales. And this Prince of Wales really was, you know, a monster. Mm. And they just went bang like that. And famously on their wedding day, she came into the, you can imagine she comes into the chapel and she's, she's still, because at this point, bless her, she's still thinking we we can make this work. 
She's loving life. She's loving it. He arrived drunk and so drunk that he had to be dragged in by two groomsmen who held him up during the service. And when it got to the bit about, do you have um, you know, any impediment to marriage? He stared at Lady Jersey and started crying. And then during the prayers, when they're on their knees, he turned around and started crawling out of the chapel. At which point George III kind of hauled him to his feet, turned him around and sort of put him in place and made him finish the service, the ceremony. And Caroline later said that when they got back to the room for the wedding night, he passed out in the grate. And she said, and there I left him. So he spent his wedding night asleep in the fire grate. But at some point they managed to have sex because Mm. she got pregnant. She got pregnant almost immediately. And they separated almost immediately after the birth of the child. But George, being anything but a gentleman, then started saying to people, oh, she's filthy. We managed to sleep together three times. Um, but I couldn't bear, bring myself to sleep again because she's so dirty. And she wasn't a virgin anyway. And she tried to pretend she was. And the whole thing was just really ugly. Hmm. And it was a marriage that shouldn't have happened, certainly hmm. shouldn't have been allowed to go on. Same as Charles and Diana. That's yes, literally, exactly. Yeah, literally. Exactly. Yeah. But this was, I feel like, you know, with Charles and Diana, we know there were some happy times. Yes. 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 yes, 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 yes. Not here. And you just think about that. Oh, my God. How did this couple manage to have a baby? What the alcohol? The alcohol, probably, <laughs> to be honest. You know, Shall we? Um, okay. Yeah. It probably was. And you know, famously, mm-hmm. Jane Austen later said that she supported Caroline because she hated George. You know, people really hated him. I think, you know, as again, as we see with modern royals, that Caroline knew how to capitalize on it. Mm. And she really was savvy. One of the best things about Caroline is how much for her entire life she just really annoyed George. <laughs> fact that she was up and walking about annoyed George. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I'm going to feel bad for George because it's one of the things where, you know, sometimes you'll have something in your life and just them breathing annoys you. Yeah, yeah. It's like those memes, you know, look at her eating her biscuit like she owns the place. Yeah. yeah. And imagine being married to that person. Yeah. No. And, you know, we later, George later tried to get divorced. and But that's, you know, that's a huge thing now. Mm. And back then it was... And he was already seen as the one who was in the wrong because he was seen as leaving. You know, he just, at a time when people were struggling for money and Mm. people were literally starving and George is spending ridiculous amounts of money on mistresses and jewels Mm. and, you know, parties at which he had mile-long channels of water with gold and silver fish swimming in them and all that. I think it's that thing that your enemy's enemy is your friend. Mm. And she was his greatest enemy. So everyone went, oh, she's great. We just love her. <laughs> she's the bee's knee. Yeah. She's the best. We lap her. We can't get enough of her. Whereas George, they were going, oh, he's awful. And they, you know, spoiled little brat. I do really feel sorry for George because he again is a product of his childhood. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And again, and a very restrictive childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes they didn't tell him no. Yeah, they didn't. (laughs) And I think that's the thing with Charlotte, particularly. Charlotte, as you know, had a super fractious relationship with George. Mm. And they were always either best friends or enemies. She, to me, was like the classic indulgent mother and son. But there's a point at which she goes, no, 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 that's far enough. And then after a couple of weeks, we'll go, oh, mum. She's like, oh, okay. Oh, go on then, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Mummy. It's funny because she was, no one could get round her but him. Mm. And... Yeah, exactly that. Mummy, mummy, not fair. Like King, uh, Prince John in Robin Hood. It's just, this yeah. is the scene. <laughs> this is what I see. Mummy. Yeah. Exactly that. 
It's yeah. exactly that. And it's when they kind of went to war with him saying she wasn't a virgin and she saying, well, I'm surprised I got pregnant because he's not all that. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, you know, it's just this amusing but also terribly ugly and it's no way to live, is it? No. no. You know, it's really no way to live. Mm. And as we see with all the other Georges, when their daughter was born, how did George get at his wife by restricting access? Mm. And as we see throughout the Georgian kings, they use their children as weapons, mm. which, you know, I don't have children, but I've seen that happen to other people that I know. Yeah. And it's just the most toxic thing. You know? Yeah. As, as I say, you should love your child more than you hate each other. Oh, 100%. But yeah. yeah, he restricted everything in her life. So she once again had to sneak in to see her daughter. But in this case, you know, it, it backfired because we ended up with Princess Charlotte, who didn't really have a close relationship with either parent had terrible arguments with George that eventually led to her, like literally running out of the house and fleeing to her mother and then her mother sending her back because again as we saw before that she's caught between a rock and a hard place because obviously if she takes her daughter in all that will happen is she'll get dragged back mm. and then she'll see her even less and I think it's a real shame that how many times nobody in this family learns from the yeah. generation before mm. they don't go this was terribly toxic when it happened two generations past they just go, let's keep doing it because, you know, we know how that works out. They have Charlotte and um, after Charlotte's born, George changes his will. Yes, he changes his will to leave everything to his, um, his clandestine wife, Maria. Mm. Who, do I see Maria behind you on a shelf? Yes, you do. Yes, I she do. <laughs> yes, but he left everything to her and one shilling to his wife. No second best bed then. <laughs> no second best bed, no bed at all. You're not even going to get a bed with one shilling. Oh. And Caroline responds to George's bad behaviour by separate. Well, they separate. She mm. goes to live in Blackheath and essentially opens up, as we've seen these alternate courts, mm. she establishes not so much court, but a kind of salon, at which the most welcome people are her husband's political enemies. And she starts to gather politicians and thinkers and... Once again, we start to see rumours that, because, you know, what's a great one to bash women with? Oh, she's sleeping with them all. Yeah. She probably was sleeping with some of them. Left. She starts to gather them. And there's some wonderful stories about these politicians behaving very badly at these parties she held, you know, getting drunk and playing sort of bawdy charades and things like that. But it's not the worst stuff in the world. But as you say, the very act of her existing really riles her husband. Mm. And she's no better, really, because she knows that she starts to do things just to rile her husband, which you can kind of see, but it's not a lifestyle. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but the other thing that she does that really the public love, she's very philanthropic mm. and she gathers children. And I'm this is where, Julie's Dale. Yeah, yeah. We get to <laughs> one of the big things that she gathered a child. It starts back with Caroline getting very close with a naval hero called Sir Sidney Smith. And when I say it gets very close, to put it politely as they did at the time, she would take breakfast with him. So make of that what you will. And they would lock the door. Now, he was also taking breakfast with one of Caroline's best friends, Lady Douglas. So there's already a bit of argy-bargy because, you know, they've got this shared naval hero. And then another naval hero comes along, Thomas Mamby. So they've got a type. They like a nautical hero, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, as I say in one of my books, there's no reliable narrator in this. So 
Sydney Smith is staying with Lord and Lady Douglas and Lady Douglas is having breakfast with him in the morning. And he starts to have breakfast with Caroline instead. Now, Lady Douglas's staff said that the more he breakfasted with Caroline, the more agitated Lady Douglas became. So make of that what you will. They like their semen. Sorry. They did like their (laughs) semen. The men of the sea. Uh, Upped the ante and started serving, I assume, Lady Douglas has served a more appetizing breakfast menu. (laughs) So he started having breakfast again, at which point somebody wrote a letter to Lord Douglas, an anonymous letter, Mm. saying, your wife is sleeping with him. And Lady Douglas said, I believe that she sent this, Caroline sent this, my close friend sent this letter. And the two women kind of went to war and they went to war of the naval heroes and they sniped and they backbit and they tried to divide because they shared lots of friends and each tried to get the friends mm. on side. All this kept going on until Caroline took in, well, an orphan called William Austin or what people thought was an orphan, at which point Lady Douglas went to the Prince of Wales and said, that's not an orphan, that's her child with any number of men, it could be anyone, but she's cuckolded you. And obviously there's an issue here because if she later tries to say he's your child, he's one of in the line of succession. So the Prince of Wales thought, I mean, incredibly stupidly decided to make an issue of it. So launched what became known as the delicate investigation, which was determined to discover whether Willikins, as she called him, was her son. And if he was her son, what her punishment should be. Because obviously, there's all kinds of things at play here, sort of constitutional issues. Mm. And Lady Douglas became the star witness. So this is her ex, one of her best friends, is now in public telling people that I'm not motivated by anything other than concern for my future king, concern for my country. It's no jealousy at all. It's just (laughs) really concerned what this might mean. Even though nobody but her had said he was Caroline's child, But unfortunately, Caroline had made a joke when she took this little kid in. She actually said to Lady Douglas jokingly, oh, wouldn't just imagine if I told people he was um, Prince of Wales' son, wouldn't that be funny? And that was what Lady Douglas used to say, well, this is what she intends to do. Now, obviously, the issue here would be that she'd already been separated for quite a while by this Mm. point. So it's an issue of proof. But George saw it as an opportunity that if we can prove that she's been unfaithful, I can get divorced. Hooray, <laughs> I can be free of her. And Lady Douglas gave, played witness, and she said that she said that she'd seen her with men and that she was a different man. She also made a few comments that seemed to suggest that Caroline had a thing for her as well, saying, Oh, she was so inappropriate with me. She wanted to hug me and kiss me and she wanted to like, you know, always be around me. And it was really, you know, so mixing it a bit of homophobia there as well, <laughs> just for mm-hmm. you know, just for good measure. And obviously at this era, that would be. Yeah, you know, people would be really shocked by that. Well, it starts look quite bad for George because the more they interviewed members of Caroline's household, the more it started to seem as though this was nothing. She had a mm. you know history and a reputation for looking after foundlings. There was absolutely no evidence beyond gossip that she'd been sleeping with anybody. And then out of nowhere, they suddenly produced Willikins' parents mm. and said, "Well, you know, I don't know why they didn't do that on day one." But they eventually did. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking to some degree they wanted to embarrass George. Mm. And they produced the parents who came with this amazing story. His mother said, we were out of work, we were starving. And I walked all the way to Blackheath and I asked if there was any work. And 
she was lovely and she said there wasn't any work but she wanted to take my son in and give him this amazing life and I would still be allowed to see him you know mm. what a saint I mean talk about a death blow can you imagine being George and you think you're going to get a divorce and you get a saint and the delicate investigation as it was known just collapsed all that it could say was we're not satisfied that she hasn't been unfaithful mm. but we are satisfied that this child is not hers. It not only kind of laid, because they were separated, everyone knew this, but it really laid mm. bare. Although it was supposed to be on the quiet, it wasn't supposed to be reported, it got out. And people really didn't like George Society, but now they hated him. And they had this rallying point of this wronged wife. And, you know, we know the public loves a wronged royal wife. <laughs> she had, as her counsel, Spencer Percival, future prime minister, future assassinated prime minister, actually. I was going to say the um, only one. <laughs> yes, the only one. Spencer Percival. For now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I once made that joke at a Women's Institute and they absolutely gales of laughter. They were not like I expected Women's Institute to be. I've learned <laughs> since. Spencer Percival put it all down in a book mm. and threatened to publish it. And again, this became, because it's this kind of thing where you, it's like the lady in the cafe earlier. Oh, I'll tell you what I know. Oh, but maybe I shouldn't. And then people start to fill in the gaps of what they think. And he put it all down in a book and he said he was going to publish it. And there was a scramble to get it, you know, to kind of buy him off and to buy people off and to give Caroline what she wanted to shut it all down. And George III did like Caroline. He actually did because he didn't like his son. Yeah. And he said, let's, let's try and be a bit more welcoming to her. And then she went and published the book. Of course, you know, Spencer Percival profited from it. Political enemies profited because... They started to make bargains to try to in the book. Miraculously, despite there being a big bonfire of the book, it was called The Book. Hmm. Some copies of it got into the wild, you know, it got out there. And it presented this terribly wronged woman. This was the image that stuck, that she became the public favourite and George became the king or the prince, later the king that everyone hated, which hmm. he absolutely couldn't live with. He wanted, despite his bad behaviour, he wanted to be liked. Mm, burn book and mean girls a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i think it's quite funny because at one point in history that that did change she became the villain in the story do you think that's the the victorians i think it's that she was seen as going a little too far so she went off as we know she went off to europe mm. eventually um when her daughter was a bit older she was still massively popular but she just felt as i think we understand you know it's not a home country and she just felt restricted. Mm. And she decided to go to Europe. And George was really happy. And when she got to Europe, she took this lover who they met, actually, Pergami. They met like something from a romance novel. She was in Italy. He was a hugely strapping soldier. Came to her hotel to see her. And they said he had whiskers that reached to London. And when you see him, he's got this huge moustache. He came to meet her to see if he could get a job. And he happened upon a woman who, was, God knows what this means, got her dress caught in the furniture. And he <laughs> dropped to one knee and released the dress. And he said to her, Madam do you know where I might find the Princess Wales? And she said, oh, that's me. And from that moment on, they became inseparable. <laughs> but she started to behave in a way, as one reporter said, even the Italians think she's shocking. So she would go out without her stays on and she would wear diaphanous dresses and dance and drink and, you know, generally hang out mm. in every sense of the word. And back home in England, George started to obsess over getting rid of her. Um, and then their daughter died. So she died just a little while after labour and she gave birth to a stillborn baby and she died very young. 
and it plunged the country into mourning. And her death, by this point, George was Prince Regent. Um, so he's essentially in power because his, mm. his father is incapacitated. But her death changed everything. And George didn't tell Caroline that her daughter had died. So she's waiting to hear that she's going to become a grandmother. And a royal messenger came through the village she was living in and she gave him hospitality. And she noticed he was carrying black-edged letter to the Pope. And she asked who died and he said, oh, it's your daughter. Mm. And at that point, Caroline became kind of obsessed with getting her own back on George. So again, she still had, you can imagine she still had the love of the public. She's coming back. And she's on her way back, and George II dies. So suddenly, George IV, her hated husband, who she's not, she's seen him, but she's not been with him for years, he's king, and she's queen. Mm. So she decided to come to England. She was put on trial for the pains and penalties bill, which was to get a divorce. Again, the public rallied round her. Again, the public mood went with her. You know, there was all kinds of things about her sex life, about this and that and the other. But gosh, she's got this huge groundswell of popularity. The radicals rallied round her. She just kept bowling on through. It seemed like George couldn't beat her. And as you say, she had one mistake, which was she decided she wanted to be crowned alongside him, which mm. I think she misjudged the public mood because the public hated George, but they'd been through a lot. If George knew how to do one thing, it was how to throw a party. And for his coronation, he was going to have this enormous, if you like, countrywide party. And they'd mourned the old king. You know, they, when the old king died, a lot of people took it really hard. Because although they'd not seen him for years, they kind of followed his illness and they really, he'd had his unpopular times, but because it's that thing of when someone's ill and you don't see them, you kind of miss them. Mm -hmm. And they wanted stability. They, Although they had their doubts about the new king, they wanted, as we do, you know, I think we saw it with King Charles, that people who criticised him suddenly want it to be all right. Mm. And she got letters saying, stay away from her own advisors said, don't come to Westminster Abbey keep quiet, don't do it. Mm. But she kept on, she wrote to her advisor, she wrote to the prime minister, she wrote to the new king, get me a dress, get me a this, get me a that, I'm coming. And she turned up super early in the morning at Westminster Abbey and there's already a huge crowd. And she started going from door to door and oh my God, it's awful. The doorkeepers just were like, you can't come in. You've got to have um, an invitation. <laughs> so Lord Hood, this elderly gentleman, very you know, gen old school chivalrous, gave her his, and they said, oh no, it's she said, I don't want that. I'm coming. I'm the queen. I'm coming in. And they locked the door and one of the people started laughing at her. One of the doorkeepers. And Lord Hood said it was awful. You know, it was a felt for her. Mm. And then the public crowd, the crowd started to kind of go, get out, go, leave. You know, you're spoiling the mood. She had absolutely no way to deal with it because how do you, you know, we've seen this with other people in, you know, in the spotlight that you're loved and loved and loved. And then suddenly people go, we don't want you anymore. Mm. We want to have a party and we want to get behind the king. And suddenly we're, you've been away in Europe for years and you've been having a great time. You can't just come back now. Yeah. And she just retreated and, you know, went home, stayed at home, didn't come out and got incredibly ill, incredibly fast. And there was some suggestion. I've seen some suggestion later that she committed suicide. She didn't, but she withdrew self-care, mm. if you like. So she started trying to treat herself with increasingly toxic bruise, if you like. And she did say to her advisors and the people that were close to her that she was tired of life because she'd lost, you know, she, she'd been incredibly popular for decades. And suddenly out of nowhere, this guy that everyone hated 
had sort of suddenly leapfrogged. Hmm. And he'd got everything and she'd been humiliated. And I think for someone who has been loved in the public eye for that long, that humiliation must have been unbearable. Yeah. And so public. You know, the press that had written about her in glowing terms suddenly were like making fun of her Hmm. and telling her, go back to Europe, just go, we don't want you here. But she also very strongly felt she'd been denied her role, that she was being denied her right and privilege as the queen. She just, she'd run out of fight, I think. You know, she'd, the death of the daughter took a huge amount out of her. Yeah. The trial, the pains and penalties bill didn't seem to take a lot of ash because she won, but I think it must have been draining to have, mm. you imagine having your whole life put up in the press in front of the House of Lords. They basically, you're on tr- a moral court. And yeah, you, you win, but it's, it's still draining. And she said to someone, you know, I think on the last night of her life, she said, I know I'm not going to recover and I'm too tired. Mm. And she died. It sounds and like another lobster brain situation. Yeah, kind does. of yeah. Yeah. just yeah. losing and you can't cope with the fact that you lost. Yeah. So mm. this is the response of the and body. And the doctors that treated her actually said that they believe she started to have stomach pains before she died. And she started to treat them with this mix of laudanum and all kinds of things, which they said made basically made it worse and eventually caused a blockage. Yeah. But right up to the end, she kept on asking for her own coronation. And it's like it became consumed by it. Mm. You're like so consumed by it that mm. it, it obviously not literally, but it's like it poisoned her. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if the uh, the pain she was feeling were probably stress yeah. and some form of like extreme anxiety maybe. And she tried to treat herself and the treatment according to her doctors, proved fatal or compounded an already dangerous mm-hmm. issue. And she died. Yeah. And George, sadly, thought it was great. You know, that's the sort of sad thing that he, even then he didn't have a moment in which he went, oh, what a waste of years we've both spent on this. Mm. That he thought it was great. She wanted a coffin plate that said the injured Queen of England on it. Mm. And even then they say they were taking a coffin because she wanted to be buried back on home soil. She was charged, she charged somebody before she died with making sure this coffin plate got put on the coffin. So they're on the way to the coast to sail and they stopped for a rest. And one of her loyal aides jumped on top of the coffin, started screwing it on. And another person jumped on top and unscrewed it. And it's just like, I kind of think she would have liked the fact that chaos followed mm. her to the end. I think she would have appreciated that. But the people did turn out for her. Mm. And one of her advisors, Lord Broom, who didn't really like her, but he liked advising because he really liked getting under George Foreskin. He said himself that he was never more touched by anything involving her than by the genuine grief people felt when she mm. died. And when she got to Brunswick, there was an enormous reception for the funeral. People turned out, you know, in the thousands to welcome her home. And I kind of feel like I just... She really was loved, you know, and I wish she judged those that last roll of the dice differently. Yeah. Because I think she could have probably, I think she had what she wanted. She had, you know, with Pagami, she had a man who loved her. She was happy. Mm. She didn't have to live by anyone's rules and restrictions. And at the very last, she really did exactly what George IV had done, which is that she really wanted that crown. Mm. It was, she wanted the laurel. Yeah. And I think that the, the best victory she could have had would have just been to live a happy life. Yeah. That's the best victory she would have had over it. Yeah. I feel that way with, with the whole thing about Prince Harry. I feel because he's so loved. He really is so loved. He he was the even in his bad moments, he's always been the golden boy of Britain. We have always loved him. And then 
Oh, everybody did love them together. Look at how many people turned up for the wedding and stuff. He just took it too far. I mean, even with the Oprah interview was fine. Some people were still behind him. But then he just went on and on and on. And it's like they get into their head this revenge. And it, at some point, the people will stop feeling sorry for you. That's true. I mean, I, I've seen people, you know, where marriages break down. And even the, if there's where people are the wronged party. Yeah. They become so consumed mm-hmm. with living life to kind of give the finger to the ex. Yeah. It's like live life for you. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Because the best revenge is just being happy. Being happy, yeah. She didn't need to be a queen. No. no the, I understand why she wanted it because she felt from very early on that she'd been robbed, of, that she turned, mm. she, she'd come into this wanting a marriage, wanting to be a wife, but two decades on, just let it go. You, it's not, you know what he's like, he's no bargain. Yeah. So, <laughs> You know, in fact, get down on your knees and thank God that you've not been stuck with him. (laughs) But instead, you'd live in life on your own terms. Mm. I just wish he'd stayed away. Yeah. And I understand why, because, you know, again, it's that mindset of you've been raised Mm. a certain way, that you've been given to expect certain things and you're not getting them. Yeah. But instead, look at all that you have got, especially at a time like that, when a lot of people had nothing. Mm. It's more important to live a good life or a happy life than to be giving the one up mm. to a husband who you know hates you anyway. Why do you care what you think? Yeah. I think it's the pride as well. I think it was just yeah. uh, mm. kind of, oh, well, I have been scorned in a big yeah. way, so I have to go and get it. But it's like those um, almost educational memes and gifts you have on social media that say like the best revenge to your ex if you literally ignore them. Yes. Yeah. Not even kind of yeah. saying something back, but if you literally just kind of, you know, you forget about them. I don't know what she envisioned. I don't know what yeah. she envisioned the future looking like if she'd mm. been crowned at Westminster Abbey that day. Like, surely she, did she expect to, I almost feel like, did she expect to sort of just, she made a, a life, did she think her later life's purpose would just be being a thorn in his side? Because come on, girl, that's no life. No. You know, like, or did she, would, was she going to go back to Europe and be the kind of queen and just keep living life? In which case, just go back anyway, don't worry about it. Yeah. She wasn't blameless, but yeah, she no. was... He he humiliated her in a way, but really that humiliation bounced back on him. You know, everyone mm. thought she was great. So she'd already won. Yeah. Remember we were talking about uh, Catherine of Aragon mm. and how she, she wanted Henry to keep be Henry's wife and she just wouldn't give it up. And it's, what's the end goal? Because yeah. he doesn't love you. He doesn't <laughs> want you. Just leave. At no point, right up until that last moment. Yeah. Even, you know, when they put her on trial just for the pain and penalties bill that when she won, the public mood was so far in her favour that that night people lit bonfires in her support and they lit mm. candles in the windows and houses where they weren't lighting candles for her. They had their windows put through and set fire to it. Like people were like literally committing arson in support of her. Yeah. At that point, maybe she should have gone, this has probably gone far enough now. I've got, mm. I've won, you know. Mm. But yeah, what is the end game? I don't, you know, in some ways it's like, it's a shame she didn't get it so we could have seen it. But I don't think there was one. I think, <laughs> Her and George alike both were so obsessed with just poking at each other that it's like, just move on. Yeah. Go away. I mean, George moved on by just spending money and taking mistresses and never seemed happy. Mm. You know, he was happy for a bit, then he wasn't. Whereas she genuinely seemed fulfilled and happy. So don't let him bother you. Yeah. There's the lesson. Don't let him bother you. Just move on. Let it go. Let it go. Let yes. it go. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> she started as Anna, but you know, Elsa's motto should have worked. Let it go. 100% that. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think this Caroline's legacy should be? Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? That's a tricky one. 
questions about legacies always throw me because always seem like such big answers. Like I should have a really yeah. world shattering answer to this. <laughs> I actually think this Catherine's le- uh, this Caroline's legacy, sadly, should be in take an abject lesson in letting it go. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of them. But I think as well that we see in her story reflected much later on in mm. the Prince and Princess of Wales. And I think this Caroline really illuminates the lot of a royal woman and how it badly wrong it could go. Mm. And also how, as a royal woman, you were constantly subject to not only the whims of your husband, but the whims of the public in a way that George IV was too. But as mm. the king, ultimately, he was always going to be king. Yeah. Whereas when she lost the support of the public, she kind of lost it all. Mm. So I'm not sure that's a legacy. I hope that she would be remembered as somebody who lived life on her own terms at Mm. a time when it was incredibly hard to do that as a woman. Being rich helped. (laughs) I do think she would have gotten really well if she'd have been around now. Mm. I think people would have loved her. She was kind of a little bit outside of her own time. I see there earlier that the two Carolines that we're talking about are wildly different. Is there anything that does connect them, do you think? I think the main thing that connects them, although very, very different people, Mm. is that each was very authentically herself. So that one was, if you like, in some ways, the perfect queen for her king, that she was Mm. very intelligent, very good at advice, very long suffering. But ultimately, she was a great queen in terms of diplomacy. And the other one was authentically herself at a time and with a king was just not well suited to her. So I think the two things that connect them are just their authenticity, that each one was unapologetically who they were, for better or worse, actually. Yeah. Who do, who do you connect with more out of the two Carolines? Oh, that's a tricky one. On the one hand, my husband will tell you, I am my Caroline of Ansbach side is that I'm a planner mm. and I don't do things without, very, without thinking them through. I'm very logic-brained. But on the other hand, since I became a writer full-time and left my full-time job and you know completely changed my life, which has been wonderful, that I now recognise the importance of enjoying life too. Yeah. But you have to find the balance. So it's probably, it's probably Caroline of Ansbach more because I'm the person that would be going, oh God, Caroline Brunswick, that's a bad decision. So probably Caroline of Ansbach more, but I think there's a little bit of me in, the little bit of both in me, but I don't think I'd want to be holy either. And also yeah. I don't have to put with mistresses. So that's a good thing. That, that's <laughs> definitely true. Um, what do you think that we can learn from all the Georgian queens about Georgian society? Oh, I think it's an abject lesson if you go through them all from the first to the last in firstly, the difficulties of just being Mm. a woman, you know, in terms of, as we talked about access to children, what you had to put with as a wife, obviously being in a very privileged position brings with a whole set of rewards and negatives. But I think we can really see how women were, the, the role of the woman was shaped and that Queen Charlotte, who was seen as being the quintessential Georgian queen and what a Georgian queen should be, today would be quite a divisive figure Hmm. you know kept in one place not allowed to make decisions very much the wife and mother so I think it allows us to see the changing roles of women and interestingly how we had the much more savvy queen before Queen Charlotte but people really welcomed Queen Charlotte because of what she was because she was seen as not meddling where women shouldn't meddle Hmm. Um, so I think they're an abject lesson in the way Georgian society reacts to its women and also in different ways of queenship which I think the incredibly long reign of Queen Elizabeth II has changed queenship forever we had obviously Queen Elizabeth I with another really long reign but as consorts rather than ruling queens Mm. that we've seen 
so many different ways one can be a queen and how they depend very much as well on the king you're married to. And I think that we've seen, particularly in Carolina Landsberg, a queen who would not have been a million miles away from Queen Elizabeth II Mm. in terms of making good decisions and playing that queen game really well. But as you rightly said, that it reflected back on her in how people depicted her relationship with her children and of what a woman should be. So what lessons from history do you want people to learn? That's a big one at the moment, particularly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a big one to ask me. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that I don't talk about a lot is I'm a very keen World War II historian, a hobbyist. And that's something that a lot of people can relate to, particularly with things that happen in the modern world, because we see the shape of those. And I think that the lesson that we need to learn, that we don't learn, we'll never learn, mm. is that there are lessons to learn. <laughs> yeah. And that it's not a huge amount of work, a huge amount of brain power, or a huge leap of logic to see decisions that are being made today that are going to end badly. Mm. And I think that we'll probably ask somebody a thousand years and they'll say the same, you know, it's, that's why we say we don't learn. We don't learn from history. <laughs> really yeah. don't. I think it's, it's in the history boys when she says the woman and it says that, you know, the history of the world is the history of men effing up <laughs> and women following on with the bucket. Yeah. And I think I like that. It's it up. <laughs> women with the bucket. What, what mystery from history would you like solved? The mystery from history. Are the remains? What became of Count von Königsmark, the lover of Sophia Dorothea, whose disappearance saw her locked up for 30 years? Various theories are burned Mm. on a bonfire, whilst dead, because we know he's murdered. Burned on a bonfire, buried under the floor of her chambers, which Horace Walpole loved that story because it's really Mm. gothic, thrown into a river, or the bizarrest one, still alive but paid off i think thrown into the river it's not even that big of a mystery but you know because i've written about it a lot i just really Mm. want to know where he ended up yeah because his death caused so much chaos Mm. i just want to know where he ended up i want him to be under the floorboards i'm I'm, uh, yeah 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 apparently the one under the floorboards was like a random monk yeah i mean i'm sorry for the monk it's no place to end up no but you know i just the logistics of burying someone under the floorboards of their mistress's room when their mistress was in it are so <laughs> mind-bending that you kind of want it to be that. Yeah, you do. What from Georgian society would you like to be brought into your century? Oh, the press. Oh, gosh. The Georgian press makes our press... You know that we think now we have scandalous press. Mm-hmm. The Georgian press makes our press look positively Puritan. The Georgian press were absolutely unforgiving. And they did not care. They just went in on you. And I love that their idea of censoring was if you were the Prince of Wales, they put the P of W, like, oh, I can't imagine who that was. Or the Duke <laughs> yeah. of Cumberland would be the D of C. Yeah. So the Georgian press, which was scathing, it was divisive, it was unashamedly political, one side or the other. And it just loved to dish the dirt. And in a way that's just way more entertaining than ours now. I think it's that as well. It's like, I don't really care that so-and-so is wearing a bikini or whatever. I don't really care about that. But I want to know who's sitting in the royal box that shouldn't be there and why the queen's seat is turned backwards because she's so disgusted. All that kind of thing. It's way more fun. Who's your favourite, Georgian? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think it's Horace Walpole because his, if you read his diaries, read his letters, he's just an inveterate gossip. He was Henrietta Howard when she got old. He was her next door neighbour and they used to just gossip about people and she had an ear trumpet. So he would shout the gossip down her ear trumpet so that everybody around could hear. And he just knew what was going on. And his writings are so irresistible. If ever you know, get swept into the Georgian society, it's Horace Walpole. I would just love to have dinner with him. He was the best. Yeah. 
Right, so where can people find you in your books? They can find me at katherinecurzon.com or you can find me on Twitter as Madam Gilflirt or by searching Frocking Fabulous. That's probably the best place you want to connect with me because I'm always on there. I'm a bit tragic, actually. Um, you can come and connect with me there and I love to chat to people about all sorts of things, Georgians, World War II, fashion, Dean Martin, the more Dean Martin, the better. Um, you can find my books, that cliche, wherever books are sold. But you can Amazon, brick and mortar bookshops, but shops that aren't Amazon online, you do you, but you can get them at all of them. And yeah, I love to hear from people. So, you know, I've had people get in touch with me and go, oh, I can't believe you replied, but I absolutely love it. Like, you can't stop me. <laughs> oh, it was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for this. We no, it was really brilliant. Really Thank you. It was a brilliant time. Yeah. We Thank really you, Catherine. Thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of If It Ain't Baroque Podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. With Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque Podcast on Instagram and If It Ain't Baroque History on TikTok. The website is ifitainbaroque.art. And if you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, please check out reignoflondon.com. Thank you so much and see you next time.